0: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well,
1: good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest, John Rinich, who has been here before. John is a great friend of Leading Conversations. He's a futurist, international speaker, and writer on matters of social and organizational change. He's been called a visionary and a provocateur for new thinking about work, leadership, and the future. John has authored multiple books, including Leadership in the New Era, The New Bottom Line, Getting to the Better Future, and his most current and recent release, The Great Growing Up, Being Responsible for Humanity's Future. John, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, it's good to hear your voice today. Where are you today?
2: I'm in San Francisco looking out at the Golden Gate Bridge and ships coming into the bay.
1: Oh, and it is a lovely day in the Bay Area, isn't
2: it? It's a bit overcast, actually. Oh ah. it's always a lovely day in the baby. <laughs> it's, it's always a, a lovely day, that's
1: rain. right. That's right, that's right. So, John, thanks for doing this this morning and being with us again. You um, have joined us a couple of times in the past, and um, I remember in the last show you talked about um, that, in fact, it was during the, the great collapse on Wall Street, and you talked about how, Uh, We all need to take a different look at how we were experiencing that, that if we were smart, we would actually look at the bright side, which is we have opportunity to change. And that engendered a lot of conversation out there um, because most people were simply spouting gloom and doom. And you said, yes, it's dire and look, we can do something about this. And you were actually the first person I had heard saying that. And this book, The Great Growing Up, Being Responsible for Humanity's Future, it really poses a challenge. You kind of lay down the gauntlet and say, look, all right, here we go. We have to take responsibility. Tell us how you got to the writing of this book. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, the um, the book sort of wrote itself. I didn't follow. I didn't create an outline and follow an outline. I went with just uh, responding to things as they were coming into my into my life on a daily basis. So it was a lot of spontaneity and uh, synchronicity, mm-hmm. and eventually, it, and and holding the faith. And eventually, after a couple of years, it started taking a certain form, and then it became obvious the. The stages it would go through, but in the book I paint a picture of a future I think most of us would want. It. Those of us that all would like to see the world continue—that's I think most of us. And then I look at uh, the myths that we perpetuate that are not true, but we keep living as if they're true. Well, the tell us is,
1: about tell us tell us about what the future is that you think we all want.
2: A future where basically everybody everybody has their basic needs met, so nobody is is dying of starvation or not not getting clean water to drink that sort of thing, and that there's plenty of opportunity for ambition, and there's plenty of opportunity for pursuing passions, but everybody has their basic needs met, and we have we have enough in the world to do that on a relatively sane basis, not to overconsume, but we we certainly have. A, the ability to have everybody's needs being met. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the vision, but we're not heading there right now.
1: <laughs> it certainly doesn't. We're kind of mean, like so.
2: teenagers, uh, you know, drinking drinking beer and driving the, the fast car right now. <laughs> and um, my challenge is for us to grow up and to consciously evolve into adult society. And we are still an adolescent society as a species. We
1: well, do. now, have we ever, um, is this a regression into adolescence or have we ever moved past that?
2: We have, there have been people, and there are people today who have moved past that. But, mm-hmm. but as a whole, the societies that we endure, the societies that we tolerate, are still in adolescence if you compare them to the, the behavior of a pesky teenager. A lot of what you read in the news every day is adolescent behavior. And what I really loved about this book, my agent had the book for over two years, and I was getting impatient, thinking the book should have been published long ago. we got to get this out there. So it finally gets scheduled to be published. By the way, it was published Saturday was the official day. So uh, you're
1: congratulations. right on
2: top of it here. Um, that the world in the last six to eight months has pretty much demonstrated its adolescent behavior to where now I think, and, and this is part of what ties into the uh, looking for the opportunity in all the doom and gloom, is that when you have millions, maybe even tens of millions more people realizing the systems are dysfunctional, you have a little more, you have more potential comrades in making change happen. You have more, a, a wider community community of people that see the need for change. So that's that's the good news of when all this bad stuff happens because we we humans seem to change when, for two reasons. One is the pain gets too great, or two, the pleasure is just irresistible.
1: <laughs>
2: and most of the time it's because the pain is too great.
1: And so that's where you think we're heading, is where the pain is too great. And the pleasure that we've been experiencing in the last, like, 20 years is um, losing its allure
2: well I think more and more people are realizing that that consumption isn't the answer it, mm-hmm. it's a it's a tentative a temporary fix um, get the adrenals going a little bit or something like that but you, if, as a way of life it's just com- completely unsustainable how many new cars can you buy in a year mm-hmm. and get that high because you got a new car or the new pair of heels or whatever it happens to be
1: yeah well, so what are some of the other characteristics of this adolescent time? You know, overabundance is one of them. What else do you see?
2: Impatience, short-term thinking, um, a, a um, tendency to, to hang out in, in cliques, um, refusal, refusal to see long-term solutions, resorting to violence rather quickly, um, it's, there's a lot there's a lot of them that's probably a part of a, a next sequel I'll do because I'm getting a lot of questions about that
3: Well, and the book so... is
2: not just about adolescence and, and maturity in and human beings it's about a vision for the future that we all can and I think down deep do want And uh, but the path to that if, there's no single one lens to look at this through but if there was one I would nominate the maturity of our species. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and, and, you know, that's interesting you say uh, kind of hanging out in cliques. It makes me think about the political environment these days and how polarized um, people seem to be and our government seems to be. Is oh, that you said part of what you're way, referring you to? It, you
2: said it right the first time. It's not just our government. It's us. Yeah. And we like to talk about our government like it's of them. But it, ah. it, they're just reflecting us. They're, they are there, rep- doing their job. They're representing their constituents, and we are right. they.
1: Right, right. We are they, and you know that. Well, there. That's a great example of how individuals in society don't take responsibility for what's going on. We hear people all the time talking about those people in Washington. Mm-hmm. those individuals who represent us, the government, the Congress, et cetera. And people feel, people say, we, you know, as a society we say there's really not much we can do except vote them in, vote them out. And then our process of getting them in or getting them out seems pretty ineffectual.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a... It's, uh... The blame game, and I remember one of the things that, I mean, people, one of the things in the news right now is that Obama's really been a disappointment. And when he was running for election, I remember so many, so many times he said, you know, this we can't do this without you. We can't do this without your involvement. Yeah. And Americans in particular have a habit of electing their their, uh, their, new, their new president and then sitting back and basically being armchair quarterbacks and, you know, rating him like they would their football team that Sunday. And that's what people have resorted to doing. Mm. You know, you so got him a elected, and now we're sitting back judging him.
1: It's a game. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Hmm.
2: And so, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't put any responsibility on me other than being a critic.
1: Right, 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 right. So how do we teach people to think differently?
2: Well, one one way is by writing books and doing speeches and <laughs> all of that, radio shows like yours. Um, but lar- largely, it's going to have to be, I think, a mass awakening. Uh, a lot of people getting it at the same time, because I, I suspect in your experience, and I know in my experience, I've never been able to change anybody. Right. People change when they feel like changing it, but they don't feel like cha- They actually resist it when you try changing them. Sure. But if enough people come to the realization that this is absurd, what we're doing to each other and to our planet, and they get to that place and decide to make a change for themselves and become spokespeople for that change themselves, advocates for that change themselves, it'll start catching grassroots support. And that's that's the way that I think we will basically grow up so that once that threshold is crossed, People that are acting out their adolescence, like in the news today, uh, let's say celebrity trials or Hollywood starlets or whatever, mm. they will not get any attention at all. They'll be completely ignored because, you know, adult societies don't pay much attention to that sort of thing. Right. right. They're not going to be on the cover of the, the shopping center magazines, the tabloids.
1: Do you see anywhere in the world an example of an adult society, a microcosm of what needs to happen?
2: I see pockets of it all over the place, even here in this country. There's pockets of it usually around a a few people that are thinking more maturely. Hmm. But it's hard to have much impact when the rest of society is still playing with their um, whatevers, (laughs) their toys. (laughs) <laughs>
3: well, so I, I don't
2: see I don't see a company or a country or uh, even a city where they can be completely uh, free of that immaturity because it's all around us. It's and and actually our country, uh, America, the United States of America, is one of the most adolescent countries. And we aren't very old. That's true. In proportion to things.
1: That's true. We are
2: still a fairly young country, and we're still sorting out this thing called democracy.
1: Mm. So, why do you think that is? Besides just pure time, you know, existence in terms of amount of time, uh-huh. um, why do you think it is that we are still in that struggling to figure it out stage?
2: Um you mean, but when you say us, do you mean Americans?
1: Yes, sorry, yes
2: uh, because I'm, I'm a, you're basically, I think Europe is much more mature than America. Mm-hmm. And one is that we got here we got so powerful so quickly. Ah. One of our our main assets is our uh, entrepreneurial spirit, right? But there's a place where what I call cowboy economics is does not serve the community it serves the people playing the game but that's all it serves like what for instance and i have a thing against i think i have a, a thing about uh, day traders mm-hmm. they create create no value in the world other right. than making money on money right so they add no value to the world and yet they have huge influence on markets and i heard one being interviewed the other day and he basically said he didn't care if the market crashed he will make money regardless of what happens He didn't care, and he said that, and the the interviewer was kind of stunned that he said that, but I could tell by looking at his face that he didn't care. Mm. So when you have that kind of um, heartless approach to just making a buck uh, and creating no value in the world other than for yourself and your clients, um, that I think, I think that's immaturity. I think that's adolescence. But we have had such successes up until, even in, in, in economics, we've had huge successes until now. Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of it maybe in question. And up and up through World War II, we were after World War II, we were at the height of our uh, hubris. I think mm-hmm. we had done something marvelous for the world. We had been victorious. I can still remember. I was old enough to remember a little bit of that. And it, it wasn't that we were in our hubris at the time. We were just we just did the good thing, and we, we knew we did the good thing. And we've taken that kind of uh, success, and it's devolved into a hubris over the years. And I think we have a, a, a national hubris going where, you know, U- USA, number one, we're number one, all that yeah. kind of stuff yeah. that's spreading around, the, and then we spread it around the world. Uh, Einstein said, "Nationalism is an infantile disease."
1: <laughs> well, we sure have that.
2: We sure <laughs> have it.
1: Yeah. And well, uh, we're going to talk more about this with John Renich when we come right back after this break.
0: That's www.alexconsulting. dot com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sanjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m.
2: Pacific, right here on Voice America Business.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
1: And welcome back to Leading Conversations. Our guest today is John Renich, futurist and writer on matters of social and international organizational change. John, in our last segment, we um, went to break with you quoting Einstein. Say that quote again.
2: He said, nationalism is an infantile disease. Hmm. Now, I would call it, that was 100 years ago or so, but I would would say it's an adolescent disease. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's another example of adolescence. And it's not to say... um, that it's bad to be patriotic. It's fine to be patriotic. But there's a po- point where it becomes perverse.
3: Mm.
2: When, you are, when you are so nationalistic that you don't give a damn about the rest of the world, all you care about is advancing your societies, or the phrase you hear thousands of times, in our national interests. Mm-hmm. What about the world's interests?
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And what do you mean by our national interests? So, in, in the name of nationalism, we have been very aggressive in our ways. We've done, done business and, and our foreign policy, and it's it's time for us to be globalists, not nationalists. There's nothing wrong with being proud of being an American. There's nothing proud, nothing nothing wrong with being proud of being from whatever country you're from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's a we can't afford individuals thinking only of their nation-states anymore. Right. The, we're, the, the global commons is in too precarious a, a, a condition right now. And well,
1: it, it sounds like that we have an opportunity to be a really positive example for the world if we begin to look at how we all affect one another. I mean, you've been saying we're all connected. That we we matter to one another. We the con- different countries and different regions matter to one another, and and that we actually can be patriotic by considering the whole.
2: Yes, the the, the you know even our science agrees now that there's the interconnectedness is not a, a a spiritual myth. That even the science confirms that we are all interconnected. So, in that interconnected context. Um, fight, fighting, fighting with another country or, or putting down another country is like putting down part of our own body. You know, it's like saying I, I'm, I'm going to go to war with my left hand and my right hand's going to go to war with my left hand or I'm going to go to war with my heart. I and mean, it's just silly because there is a, we all, the diversity of this world is really beautiful. Um and everybody has something to contribute and something unique to contribute, just like every individual has something individual to, to contribute. So I think we could have uh, uh, kind of heaven on earth. We, could have the, we have the ability to create a world that works for everybody. We have that ability. We have the resources to do it. We have the, the moxie to do it. We have the intellectual skill to do it. We don't need a government committee to rule on it. We don't need a budget. Mm-hmm. We just need to change the way we think.
1: Well, that sounds easy when you say it.
2: And it's a job for every one of us to do. That's that's a big piece of it is being responsible. I am, You mean I'm responsible for the world? Yes. Uh, I mean you're responsible for the world. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you you have to fix it all? No, I didn't say that. But you have to be responsible for the impact you have on it. And how you, how you tolerate, it's not so much what you do as what you don't do. What what kind of conversations do you listen to and tolerate and endure mm. that perpetuates those kinds of negative conversations, yeah. even by your silence?
1: Even by our silence. Now, that is a very interesting piece. What I have noticed uh, in the last, oh, well, probably 20 years or so, um, is that especially the baby boomer generation who started out in the younger years as a generation who saw such great possibility for change in our societies and even was willing to stand up and protest and, and get in the line of fire, literally, for change to occur. And it's as if this entire generation... Has gone silent in terms of the political realm. In terms of you know what's possible, what do you think happened there? Mm.
2: I don't know, but I I know that. Um, I've never said this before, so I I think I won't say I know. I think more harm is done by condoning through silence than is done by action. I think more harm is done by people letting somebody do something and not objecting to it, not resisting it, not arguing it down. In other words, there's, there's more harm done by people being nice and not wanting to make waves than there is by mean-spirited people. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds preposterous. and I'm even even in in the preposterousness (laughs) of it myself, but I think it might be true.
1: Well, and, and, you know, this has, I believe, um, speaks to what do we have to lose by speaking up. And there seems to be... um, a lot, there's a lot of risk, at, in in speaking up. If you think about um, how organizations and corporations and commerce has become so intertwined with politics, and so if somebody works for one of those organizations that has, um, a, for instance, makes big contributions to certain political campaigns, if Though I believe these, these organizations or corporations would not say, oh, you can't speak your mind, there may be risk to your job, right? You well, know, I out. don't know
2: if there's actual risk or if there's just fear that there might be.
1: Ah, now that's a distinction.
2: Because most people say in cor- the corporate world, most people rise to the top because they haven't screwed up anyplace. Mm-hmm. And one way they can screw up possibly is by saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. So you end up with a whole bunch of go-alongers uh, running an organization, which is a pretty boring life, sounds like to me. Yeah. <laughs> Martin Luther King said something that um, I think plays, plays here, here, in here. He said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Oh, wow. The time comes when silence is betrayal. And, and what I would say is that that betrayal is of ourselves. It's not only of our society, but we are betraying ourselves. We're selling a little bit of our soul. Mm. We want to remain silent instead of objecting to something that we feel we should object to.
1: So this is one of the patterns of behavior that you talk about that um, really prevents making a shift in our consciousness.
2: Mm. It allows dysfunction to continue. Mm. It allows mean-spiritedness to continue it allows divisiveness to continue it allows all the isms racism sexism ageism it allows all those to continue mm-hmm. because it is lacking champ they, they lack champions they lack object. you know but they lack there we need to be all champions of what's fair and right and good mm-hmm. and maybe even holy Without getting into a religious thing about it. Right,
3: right.
2: With sacred, methods. holy has, has a bit of a. Um, holy can be a polarizing word. Sacred, yeah. I think it sure. might be a more, more neutral word.
1: Sure, sure. Well, and, and what defines fair and right and good? I mean, you know, when I think about um, some of the global conversation that goes on these days, um i believe that the definitions of fair and right and good would be as diverse as you have populations
2: that's a good point that's good. and a lot of wars are fight because of different opinions about what's right and good
1: so it occurs to me that you know we need a maybe a new skill set or a better skill set in order to do this, I'm thinking of, you know, what, what if we have fear in speaking up? What are we fearing? Well, we might, as you say, fear that there is risk to, you know, any um, future gains on our part. There may also be fear of how do we engage with somebody who disagrees with us vehemently. What do you
2: think about that? Hmm. Well, one, one, another thing that's existing, widespread in this world, is mistrust. That's true. So we have a society, we have a global society that doesn't trust it, the other. So when you don't have, when you have mistrust, when you start from having being mistrustful, uh, you engage with people much, much more differently. I was in a conversation the other day with somebody I just met for the first time, so I didn't really know know her at all, and she has a fairly brash style about her, mm. uh, but the context of the group that we were in that she was coming into as a new a m- new member of the group was such that there was a lot of trust and respect for one another, mm. and within a very short period of time, I was able to say things to her, and she was willing to bark back at me that it could have looked like we were fighting. Ha, ha,
3: ha, ha.
2: But we both felt enough trust and respect for one another that even if I said the wrong thing or the wrong way, Mm -hmm. I would have a chance to explain myself rather than her beating me over the head with what I said Mm -hmm. and vice versa.
1: Well, were there specific um, norms or values in this group, you know, kind of the paradigm of the group itself
2: Yes, that That, that um, supported that? It's, it's, it's a group of people who have been together uh, quite a while, uh-huh. who really know one another, really respect one another, really yeah. rely on one another. In fact, I think I invited you into this group uh, a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. And uh, we are replacing a couple of members. Two people had to leave, so we're bringing in two new people. So they, were, they went through a peer review, you might say. They never people, you know, talked to them ahead of time. So they were coming into this group, even though it was their first time in the meeting. They, they, The whole s- description of the group is it's a uh, a group of intelli- intelligent, trusting, soulful people. It wasn't a, like a, just a public meeting. Mm-hmm. So she knew what she was getting into, and we knew what right. we were getting in, in right. her joining the group.
1: Right, right, right. So inviting people who, ha- who may have a different point of view could be an important part of the growing
2: up. Well, for instance, if the, if the world or the state or the country or the city had the context, had the social fabric that we have, say, in this group.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the only reason we don't is we, don't, we, choose, we choose not to.
3: Right. But we could have a
2: community of people that felt that way about each other, sometimes that happens in neighborhoods. I have not seen it happen in whole cities, but it, it does sometimes happen in neighborhoods. Right. Where the the neighborhoods looking out for one another, not yeah. not just yeah. in a protective way, yeah. but if somebody's in the hospital or something. There, there's yeah. a real sense of community about them, and mostly in smaller towns. That's true because the, the bigger they get, the more complex they get. But you can have that kind of uh, esprit in an, in a community of people now it what's easiest is to do it in groups of fifteen or sixteen or less
3: yeah yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> that you know so the, but the world is a bunch of cells of fifteen or sixteen people you know millions of cells of fifteen or sixteen people so if all the cells were relating to one another in that way shape that way another example of of cells you might say like that is. Um, a fellow that was recently, I recently met, named Doug, uh, Doug Baker. Mm. He and Bill George, the former CEO of Medtronic, started a thing called True North Groups. Yeah. And they put these groups together, usually six or eight people at a time. And they've had one group that they've been doing for 35 years.
1: Pretty amazing.
2: And they find that number is the most manageable. But they also point to other groups that have. Been very successful like that, and Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the ones they mention. Oh, sure. Where they the people come and get supported by each other, they trust each other as soon as they walk in the door, pretty much most of them, mm-hmm. and they end up, you know, getting their lives back and having okay. becoming very functional human beings, whereas they, so they once were quite dysfunctional.
1: Well, and and a group like that has norms, and um, they they make agreements on how they will engage with one another there and th- that seems to be something that 's missing from our social consciousness uh, as I think about um, what goes on in the in our social political world and I think about what goes on for the sound bites for our media um, and you know the creation of the support of a political idea that pops up in 10 minutes, you know, Um, so so the cameras are there, and where did all these people come from, and some of them don't even know what they're supporting, but they are there to make big noise. That has got to be affecting who we are and how we view ourselves, and John, I want to ask you about that, and and get your thinking on that we're going to take a break right now but when we come back i really want to know what you think about the media and its influence on (laughs) everything
2: okay (laughs) we'll be right back
0: Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
1: And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Our guest is John Renich, author of The Great Growing Up: Being Responsible for Humanity's Future. So, John, the media. Let's talk about the media and its influence over our social political fabric, over mm-hmm. how we act as individuals. Do what do you think in terms of how the effect and how much influence the media holds today?
2: Well, the the media is getting a bum rap, I think. Um, they are definitely the scapegoat. You can find a, in, a, in a room of 100 people, you will find 95%, 95 of them will point to the media and say, yeah, aren't they awful and they're doing all this? And they, but who's consuming the media? Right. The, the media is just the middle person, you know. Right. They, so they cover the silly trials and the you know, all the silly stuff. And they pass on all the really important stuff going on in the world. Uh, But they're giving the people what they want. And uh, I have a particular bone to pick. One of the bits of media that I watch, uh, I don't watch much news media, uh, but I do watch, I was watching BBC World News. And that was one place where I thought I might get a fairly balanced picture about what's going on in the world, although it's a little bit U.K.-based. There's a little more U.K. in there, but that's where they come from, so that's natural. But what what most people don't realize is that every edition is set up for that particular country. So this is the BBC World News for America. Uh And the news in the last year, that news broadcast has degenerated in terms of quality, the people on the air don't know what they're talking about. They're getting film film feeds and they don't know what it is, and they're doing humming and eyeing. Hmm. And this past week or so, they're they're really on this Michael Jackson's doctor trial. Uh,
3: yeah. And it's
2: probably taking 20 percent of the airtime that they have in 30 minutes, and they don't have commercials because it's on PBS. Sure. It's just, and I sent a I sent a complaint in, and then I found out they I got noticed that my complaint wasn't. Uh, didn't go to the right parties, and I have to redo it, so I mean, they may not do that. But my point is, it is degenerating, and the amount of the pablum that we're being fed in the media is because that's what we're buying. We're buying right. pablum.
3: Right, right.
2: So if we, if you look at why we are interested in gossip, why we are interested in scandal, more so than what's going on in the rest of the world or what's going on in... Other parts of the world. I mean that that airtime is precious. Mm. So if if I've got twenty minutes in a thirty minute broadcast, and I spend five minutes of it uh, talking about some silly scandal of some sort, that's five minutes I could have spent talking about a different country or a different situation in the world, something that was far more meaningful mm. uh, to people than you know just titillating their. Is that the right? Yeah, you know, that's the right word titillating their uh, need for uh, gossip. Yeah. And where does, now what do you do with that gossip? Okay, now I, I watch the, trial, the news about the trial. What do I do with that information? Well, I talk to my friend. The next time I see my friend, say, oh, did you see about the trial? And we just spend ten more minutes talking about this crap. Excuse my language, but it's but we perpetuate it. So it gets loose in the world, so that somebody hears that conversation and goes, "Oh, I better listen to. I better find out what's going on with that trial because then I won't. Otherwise, I won't be part of that conversation."
3: Right. So we
2: spend hours and hours every week in this meaningless crap. This cycle of gossip and scandal and Mm -hmm. who's who, and some maybe some of it's accurate and maybe some of it isn't. And it's so meaningless. Right. And yet we say we cry for having meaning in our lives. Well, that doesn't balance, sorry. Right. When you're choosing to fill your your consciousness with all the silliness and then say you want more meaning in your life, I don't buy that.
1: Well, you know, that kind of reflects what you were saying earlier about how we don't want to take responsibility because in that process we get to be voyeurs. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to take responsibility for how someone else is um, screwing up, you know, whether it be that doctor or whomever, or that politician or whomever. And we get to say, well, you know, at least I don't do stupid things like that. And is it does it make us feel better about ourselves?
2: I think it it, it numbs us. I think I think by engaging in all that it's it's like having another drink or smoking a joint or something. I think what it does is it's a distraction and that's another adolescent activity. Right. Is get easily distracted. So let's distract ourselves because otherwise I got to think about something I don't want to think about, which might be the state of the world. Wow. It might be the state of my contentment with what I'm doing in in my business. It might be it could be anything that you don't want to look at. And God knows we have lots of things that we find hard to look at, but we need to look at them. That's what adults do. Is they look at the hard issues. They don't turn their back on them or, or uh, distract themselves. Teenagers do.
1: So, John, you talked about earlier, um, you mentioned that there are myths that we hold that are no longer valid. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: I can. In fact, I might even refer to some in the book. Um, Scarcest, what are our what are our scarcest assets on earth?
1: What are our scarcest
3: What's our
2: most is? scarce asset in the world?
1: Jeez. I don't know.
2: But you tend to think of physical ones, right? Sure. Water, oil. Sure. Most I, I contend that the scarcest asset on earth is human attention. Ah. One 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 way to go. Uh, nature is a place where we go to vacation, or renew, or relax.
3: Right.
2: Well, that implies that we're separate from nature. Mm. Big myth. We are part of nature. We're not, we're not acting like it, but we are part of nature. A high a high rise concrete building on top of a hill is just as big a bigger part of nature as an, an ant hill or a termite hill. Mm. We are we are we are peopled on this planet. Uh, Here's one based on what we were just talking about. I can count on the media to get all the news that's really important.
1: Ah, uh, right.
3: Sure,
2: you know, you know that's <laughs> obvious.
1: Not these days.
2: Um, everyone wants a better world. Mm-hmm. Not so quick. To some people, it, 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 religious fanatics in particular, I'm thinking about, would like the world to end because that'll justify all their beliefs. Uh, If only poor countries could develop economically, they'd be fine. What I say about that is economic development without human development is a waste of money. It's a myth perpetrated by the elite and often by patronizing nations who do not understand the cultures of of the developing world. Therefore, billions of development funds are frequently wasted, and situations are often made worse. Right. Paradoxes must be reconciled. That's another myth. Um, mostly perpetuated by men, I point out. <laughs> men like to solve things.
1: I've and, noticed that. And
2: many, many men cannot tolerate ambiguity and seeing contradictory opposites as coexisting. Women have less difficulty accepting this reality, which exists throughout nature. Mm. Insisting that all paradox must be resolved requires unnatural and inaccurate labels, often resulting in the creation of a false truth for the sake of maintaining the intolerance. One of the things that uh, Rebecca uh, Costa, uh, she wrote a book last year called The uh, Watchman's Rattle. Yeah. And she pointed to uh, two telltale signs of a, a society in collapse. One is gridlock, and one is when ideology replaces facts. And in my opinion, both of those things are going on right now, at least in this country. So that means that the two telltale signs of all former collapsing societies are apparent now. Mm -hmm. So I I, I actually started writing about the potential collapse of the American empire about four years ago. And because I'm a futurist and I hang out with a bunch of futurists, I was interested in why futurists weren't writing about this. Um, So it was quite an interesting conversation amongst futurists. Well,
1: and and you know, the, the we've often been compared to <clears throat> follow the Roman Empire. Were the same behaviors going on then?
2: Mm-hmm. All, all empire collapse that I know of has been implosions. It's all been inside. Mm. And one of the most novel collapses where they didn't. Um, what, what? uh Costas mentioned. She mentioned the Mayan and the, uh, an Indonesian culture, and uh, the Roman Empire. Mm. But the British Empire kind of saw the writing on the wall, so they didn't collapse completely. They kind of downsized.
3: That's true. Uh,
2: so they did it a little more, with a little more smarts, I think. Uh, but they saw the way the world was going, and instead of fighting it and, and pushing against it, they actually went with it. No. Well, and
1: that meant they really um uh, reduced their reach, reduced their power and influence um, and, and I think that that's part of what people fight for right is the they're afraid of losing power or the country's afraid of losing power
2: well the 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 colonies the, the British colonies are still having influence. It's amazing. There's still this loyalty to the crown mm-hmm. uh, in so many places. But they don't have, the, those countries are also independent now or more independent than they were. So what the Brits gave up is they, they gave up the power, but they did not give up the influence. They, they have a huge influence. Uh, with America's outreach, because we, we had military bases in like 200 countries or something like that, a huge number. So we have a strong presence in lots lots of places in the world. But I think for behind our foreign policy is a need for power, is that craving for power. Um, now, that can be put to good use. That can be put to peaceful means for sure, uh, because we do do some work as a, as a peacekeeper. Um, but I think the, the – the, oh, I remember there was a line – I wrote about this in an my editorials a couple of years ago, that, um, oh, I can't remember his name, but it, this was the seeds of our current f- our foreign policy. but It was right after World War II, and they were writing a report on for Harry Truman. And this guy, oh, I can't remember his name. He was uh, a secretary of some sort. And he actually told the author of this document that became the, the core document for our foreign policy, is to scare the hell out of Truman.
3: <laughs>
2: that would create enough fear. Again, in this in this case, it was a fear of communism mm. after World War II, mm. that that they would get the allocations and the budgets and all that sort of thing. And that that I say, oh, so that was actually intentional that they put. They injected fear into the game there. Right. So a good part of our foreign policy, which was set up, the architecture was set up in the late 40s, the DNA that was injected into it was fear.
1: Well, so let's talk about the behaviors that we need to encourage in order for our future to be successful. We've got about three minutes left here, so give us a synopsis.
2: Well... Idealism without the uh, fantasy—that would be one. Uh, convert, convert back all those idealists that became cynics. Hmm. put them back in the game. One, one—a big, a big part of making any kind of big change happen is for people to get the possibility of it. Hmm. So, if people look at the vision I put forth in this book as, as balderdash, as gibberish, as naivete. Uh, they are arguing that change can't happen. Uh-huh. So one is you have to see the possible. Nobody's going to put a lot of time into something unless they see it as possible.
3: Sure, sure.
2: And some, for some reason, I got that bug. I got that bug a lot of years ago. I don't know why I got it, but I see that we can have a world that works for everybody. I really yeah. do.
3: Yeah. And
2: otherwise, I would be doing this for the past 25 or 30 right, years. right. So if you don't think it's possible, you're not going to do much in that direction. So changing your attitude about what's possible and what's not would probably be the biggest single thing. Mm. And also looking at how you act, you personally uh, carry out adolescent indulgences, what kind of things you do every day. And I'm sure you do. Whenever I've looked, I've, I see dozens of things. And, and if you know there are adolescent indulgences, Wonderful. Have a ball. I'm not saying you have to act like an old fuddy-duddy, but just look for the ones that you're not even aware of that you're doing, mm-hmm. like the gossip stuff. Right. No, you, it's not like you have to act like an old fart all the time. <laughs> 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 it's, it's I'm just, relieved to
1: hear that.
3: <laughs> you, can have, you can
2: have the adolescent, you know, you can go to dances and act like a kid and all that. That's fine. But you know you're doing it and you're, and you're having a good time. Yeah. But but to uh, look and see where you are, where your adolescent is sneaking out, fooling you into thinking it's being an adult. Mm-hmm. And eventually as you uncover those parts of yourselves that you're unaware of and you become more conscious, uh, you'll start looking at how you could have a more meaningful life and how we could have a more meaningful world.
1: Well, the book is The Great Growing Up being responsible for humanity's future, and I know in that book there are many more uh, recommendations for how we can make this a better future. So, John, how do people find your book?
2: Well, Amazon.com is where to go, and just uh, it's a long URL, so I won't give you the whole URL, but just Google The Great Growing Up, um, or go to Amazon and search for The Great Growing Up, or use my name, Renish, R-E-N-E-S-C-H. Uh, you'll find it there. It's, I think, number 14 of my books. 14, but, uh, yes. It became available to buy on Saturday. So you can actually order the book and have it shipped in days.
1: Fantastic. John Minnitz, always wonderful 17, to have it here.
2: Only 11 bucks too, by the way.
1: Only 11 it's, it's 12 bucks. That's a deal to change the future. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> John, thanks so much for being with us today on Leading Conversations. It's always a pleasure. And remember, everyone, to think big. The world could become a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.